please turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 9. It's good to see Tom's face on this live stream again. Continue to pray for this brother as he landscapes this summer. I pray that uh, work would continue to be plentiful and productive and uh, be thinking of him as these summer months go by. Let's pray together before we begin. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. Lord, as we come to your word, we acknowledge that it would be unprofitable for our faith to rest on the wisdom of men. And so it is our prayer this morning that by the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit, you would work in us in a way that only you can. And so do the work that you long to do. Do it through your word as we perk up our ears and pay attention to all that you have to say. Be exalted, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of introduction, I want you to uh, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper. Maybe you got one of our scripture journals. I, I'd like you to grab your scripture journal. Turn to our passage this morning, uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. And beside that text, I want you to draw a chart. On the left-hand column, I would like you to write over the top of that column the name Adam. And then on the right-hand column, I'd like you to write another name, the name Noah. And, and you need space for probably about 13 lines. I, I would like to show you that Genesis views Noah as a new Adam, as the new head of humanity. And I just want you to see the parallels between the first Adam in the garden and Noah. Genesis goes out of its way to make, draw these parallels. So, so, so let's begin. We're going to throw it up on the screen, uh, the, the first nine of these parallels. Uh, let, let me just walk you through them. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the beginning is marked by the earth being covered in water and chaos. And then you get to chapter 8, verse 1, under Noah, and this new beginning takes place after the waters of the flood recede. There's a parallel of water there. Then you get 20 verses later in uh, chapter 1, you see that birds, creeping things, and animals flourish and multiply on the earth. And then you get to the Noah account in Genesis chapter 8, and you see that birds, creeping things, and animals begin again to flourish and multiply on the earth. Third line, the sun and the moon in Genesis 1, 14 to 18 are created to distinguish between day and night to establish the seasons of the year. Well, you get to Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, and after the flood, this natural rhythm is restored. Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, these shall never cease, says the Lord. Adam and Eve, 128, are given dominion over creation. Noah and his sons are then given dominion over creation in 9 verse 2. God provides food for Adam, 129. God reiterates the provision of food for Noah in 9 verse 3. Man is commissioned in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, 126. Man is recommissioned in the image of God in 9 
Chapter 9, verse 6. Man is commanded to fill the earth, 128. Well, man is commanded under Noah to fill the earth again in 9, verse 1 and verse 7. God brings animals in for naming to Adam in 219. God brings animals for delivering in 7, 13 to 15. Three sons are mentioned of Adam. Cain, Abel, and Seth in Genesis chapter 4. Three sons are mentioned of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and 9. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. See, clearly, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is showing us that there are parallels between Adam and Noah. We have every reason for optimism as we read about Noah, for he is described as a righteous man. He's, he's pictured, he's rolled out as this new Adam. He is righteous he is blameless. He walks with God. He's, he's an obedient man throughout the Noah narrative twice. He is, he is said to obey the commands of the Lord, all of the commands that God gave him. And so this man and his family are alone preserved as God wipes out an evil and corrupt human race in the flood. Noah and his wife are preserved in the ark. His three sons and their wives, eight in total, are preserved in this ark. Ark. When the floodwaters dry up, the family exits the ark and Noah immediately builds an altar and offers a burnt offering to the Lord in worship. And we're told that the Lord is pleased with this offering. So this recast Adam, this new Adam is seen in this optimistic light in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in the first half of chapter 9. First 17 verses of chapter 9, God blesses Noah and his family and he makes a covenant with them. He puts his bow in the sky as a reminder of an everlasting covenant that he is establishing with humanity that he will never again flood the earth. So we get to chapter 9, verse 17, where Sean, Pastor Sean left us off last week and we are to sense a spirit of optimism in the text. Here is a new Adam. Is this the deliverer of Genesis 3.15, the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Who is this guy? It's a clean slate. It's a new beginning. It's like a freshly cleaned sheet of ice after the first period of a hockey game. It was chopped up and destroyed. And then it's flooded, and it's, it's beautiful again for the second period. Yes, the world's not perfect. God admits that in Genesis 8, 21, where he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But still, this is cast as a new beginning with a new Adam. Maybe things will be different under this Adam's headship, under Noah's headship. Spoiler alert. We get to the end of chapter 9, and we find out that this new Adam is no different than the first Adam. Our text this morning highlights a defiling event in Noah's life after the flood. And as we look at this defilement, this truth will surface as we look at this account that the human race requires, the human race needs a true and better Adam. That is what these verses cry out. The human race needs a true and better Adam. 
We cry out for this true and better Adam as we finish Genesis chapter 3. The fall takes place. Adam and Eve fall into sin. And we go, we need someone who will not do what they have just done. We need a new Adam. We, we, we feel this cry as we complete chapter 4. Ah, Eve gives birth to Cain. Maybe this is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Maybe this is the Adam that we are looking for, who will deliver us from our sins, who will crush the head of the serpent. We get to the end of chapter 4, and we're still crying out for a new Adam. The human race requires a true and better Adam. Genesis 9 promotes this very truth again. We need a deliverer who will save us from the defilement of sin. That is our greatest need. Without a true and better Adam, we stand condemned under the first Adam in our sins. We need a new representative head. Well, let's take up our copy of the scriptures and read these verses and see three implications of these verses. Genesis 9.18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This morning, I want to borrow my sermon structure from a competent, wonderful pastor, Joel Beakey. He put together an awesome outline for this text, and I just can't get it out of my head. In short, the defilement described here has three layers. You can write these down if you're taking notes. There is the personal layer, there is the familial layer, and there is a universal layer to this defilement. So let's look at the first layer. Number one, the defilement after the flood is personal. At this point... In Noah's life, he is around 600 years of age. We get that information from verse 28. That means he's approximately two-thirds of the way through his life. Someone two-thirds of the way through their life in Canada today, the the average Canadian lives about 81.75 years. If you're about two-thirds of the way through your life, you're you're in your early to mid-50s. That might come as a shock to some of you, but I'm I'm just pumping stats here. The details about Noah's actions in this text are brief, but they are clear. We're told that Noah becomes a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard. He makes wine. He gets drunk. And his drunkenness leads to nakedness. And there is no approval for any of what Noah does here in the text. The brief comments about all that Noah did denote disapproval 
But from these details, we receive two exhortations. Exhortation number one, we are exhorted to be watchful. We are exhorted to be watchful. Noah was two-thirds of the way through his life. He was mature. He was commended previously as being righteous, as being blameless, as walking with God. He had a decade left until retirement. And yet we find as we look at this account that there is no age of retirement when it comes to our sanctification. We battle until we die. We press on and fight the good fight of the faith until the race is over. There is a battle to be fought in the Christian life. There is a race to be won in the Christian life. Maybe you're not being watchful. Christian, let me urge you to remember the exhortations, the manifold exhortations of Scripture. Your life is not over yet. You may have retired from your work. You may have advanced in years. Maybe the sins that once plagued you in your youth, you say, ah, my youth is over and I have moved on from that. No, there is a fight to be fought. There is a race to be won. Push on, persevere, endure, fight the good fight of the faith. Listen to what the scriptures have to say on this matter. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Paul says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be like, act like men. Be strong. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Run with endurance the race set before us. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. Have nothing in your head, in before your vision, that will cloud your mind from making, honoring, upright decisions. Be sober-minded, 1 Peter 5. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Jesus' words, finally, Jesus' words to his disciples are helpful to us in Matthew 26, 41. As Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest and crucifixion, he says to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing But the flesh is weak. Friends, complacent Christianity is an oxymoron. A coasting Christian is a Christian in danger. We fight the good fight by the help of the Holy Spirit until our dying day. It is a continual fight. It is a constant fight. But friends, it is a resourced fight. We are given all that we need to fight this good fight of the faith. It is a communal fight. We are given the body of Jesus Christ to link arms with and and, and move forward with in strength, exhorting one another, picking one another up when we fall down. Maybe you're scared that you won't make it to the end. 
You say, every day is so hard. I've got such a long journey left. Oh, the road ahead is so much longer. Oh, I'm only, I'm only 30, and if I live to 81.75 years like the average Canadian, i got about 52 more years of fighting. And guess what? Every day is exhausting for me. Friend, if that's you this morning, let me share a verse with you that regularly encourages me because I'm in the same boat as you. The end of Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory Majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Friend, look to the one who is able to preserve you and to present you blameless before his presence in glory. Look to him. He is able. Maybe you're watching this morning and you've said, well, you know, I failed to be watchful. It's not even, will I endure till tomorrow? It was yesterday. It was last week. Already I failed to be watchful. Friend, do not throw in the towel. There is forgiveness and grace for a multitude of sins at the foot of the cross. 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Came to purchase the redemption of his people by his own blood. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Noah's life here, as we look at a man two-thirds of the way into his life, it exhorts us to be watchful. Second, Noah's life exhorts us to be sober. Noah's life exhorts us to be sober. Noah became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. In sobriety, intoxication, and drunkenness are celebrated by the world. Look at college campuses. Look at the clubs and the bars. Look at the commercials that are advertising alcoholic beverages. Look at the lineups outside the liquor stores during this pandemic right now. Look at the marijuana shops popping up throughout our city. There are well over, I don't know if you know this, there are well over a dozen marijuana shops in the city of Cambridge alone. But drunkenness, intoxication, insobriety is never looked upon with favor in the Bible. The very next incident of drunkenness in Genesis chapter 19 leads to incest. In Genesis 19, Lot's two daughters scheme to get their father drunk, and then they lay with him. Now, I've no doubt that there are folks tuned into this live stream right now who are tampering with drunkenness. You are playing with alcohol in a manner that the scriptures do not look upon with favor You might even be tempted to tune out right now, turn this off, busy yourself by doing something else. Can I just ask you to give me a couple of minutes? I'm not here to slap you. I'm here to point you to life-giving truth. I'm here to give you hope. Maybe there are teenagers and young adults who are feeling pressured by their friends right now or someone that they like to to participate in the irresponsible consumption of alcohol. Please listen up for a couple of minutes. 
Drunkenness, not alcohol, is condemned in Scripture. Drinking alcohol in moderation is a conscience issue, and I would not dare make Scripture say what it does not say. Scripture does not say that Christians cannot drink alcohol. It is a conscience issue. Your conscience has to land on that. Every Christian needs to assess the issue of drinking alcohol with their Bible in hand, prayerfully and thoughtfully, not only thinking of themselves, but thinking of the community of Christ. The area of drunkenness, though, is crystal clear in the Scriptures. Those who belong to Christ are not to dabble in that area of drunkenness. Paul tells the Corinthian church that drunkards do not belong to the church's fellowship in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Then in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, he tells the church that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he lists off a series of vices that characterize the unrighteous. And one of them is drunkenness. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 that one of the works that characterizes the flesh. He is, he's saying that there are those who walk by the spirit. There are those who walk by the flesh. You want to be those who walk by the spirit, not the flesh. Well, one of the works that characterizes those who walk by the flesh is drunkenness. And he concludes by saying that those who do such things, once again, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness is not condemned in scriptures because God is trying to limit us. He is trying to take away our freedoms. He's trying to take away our enjoyment. Drunkenness is condemned for our good and for God's glory. We were made by God for God. We were made to be satisfied in God. We were made to enjoy God. We were made to be happy in God. Drunkenness attempts to find satisfaction. It attempts to find fulfillment and pleasure in a substance and only brings us into further slavery and into further, excuse me, further sins associated with this sin. I mean, look at the consequences that drunkenness brings with it. So many. Noah's nakedness is exposed as a direct result of his drunkenness. Lot's nakedness is exposed in a sexually defiling way. Drunkenness and sexual immorality go hand in hand in the scriptures deliberately. If you look at lists of vices, you'll see drunkenness and usually the very next, the, the very next thing will be nakedness. They're often right next to each other on these lists. Drunkenness often results in abuse, in anger, driving accidents, hookup culture adultery, slander, immodesty, and a host of other sins follow on the heels of drunkenness. Proverbs, a book all about wisdom, has this to say about drunkenness. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed drink. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, your heart utter perverse things, You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. 
When shall I awake? I must have another drink. We're being shown that sorrow is the companion of drunkenness. If any of my youth are listening, listen to the wisdom of Scripture. Don't break the law and consume alcohol underage. Don't open a door to a world of temptation. If your friends are going in that direction, turn around and go in a different direction. Think about your soul. It was made for God. Sin always means to ruin us. It makes us believe that we can control it, and all the while it controls us. Sin escalates and and, and desensitizes us. This could mean changing a friend group. This could mean telling someone about your struggle and temptation. Maybe you're listening to this and you've given into the sin of drunkenness. This is an invitation as we look at Noah's drunkenness to receive the forgiveness that is available to you in Jesus Christ, for Christ died for this very sin. Noah became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This is a new fall by a new Adam. Do you see the parallels in the text? Go back to your chart that we drew up in the introduction. I'm going to give you four more parallels. Adam kept a garden, Genesis 1 and 2. Noah kept a vineyard, Genesis 9.20. Adam ate fruit from the garden, Genesis 3, verse 6. Noah drank wine from a vineyard, Genesis 9.21. Adam knew his nakedness. It caused great shame in his life, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Noah knows of his nakedness and is shamed by it, 9, verse 24. Adam, his nakedness is covered up by God. The Lord puts together clothing for them in a measure of grace. Noah's nakedness is covered by his two sons. Chapter 9, verse 23. There is the grace of God for the defiling sin. We need a true and better Adam. Noah cannot deliver us. We need a greater deliverer who will not give in to the lust of the flesh, who will not give in to temptation. The personal defilement after the flood points us to our need for a true and a better Adam. That is defilement on a personal level. Next, look with me at the second layer of defilement in this text. The defilement after the flood is not only personal, it's familial. Our sin does not stay with us. It has greater ramifications and repercussions. Ham sees his father's nakedness, verse 22 and 23. Now, the plain reading of this text indicates that Ham's sin is not that he accidentally stumbled upon his father. No, it's clear that Ham did not avert his eyes when he found his father naked on the floor in his drunken state. He did not rush to protect his father's dignity. Instead, he goes and he gossips about his father's exposure to his brother's. And we know that Ham's actions are problematic for two reasons. Reason number one, the actions of his brothers, the actions that his brothers take are in direct contrast to his own. Whereas Ham goes in, takes a good look, as as one British theologian has said, a jolly good look at his father, and walks away, while his brothers, in contrast, walk into the tent backwards and they do not look. Number one, problematic reason, number one. Number two, when Noah sobers up, he's upset. We know that this is problematic. Now, 
we might ask ourselves, what's the harm in all of this? Isn't this just locker room stuff between guys? Ham was just having a little fun at his father's expense, right? Wasn't it his father's fault in the first place? I mean, his father drank the wine. His father was naked. I mean, it's not really Ham's fault. He probably just stumbled in here. He's just having a little fun. The problem in this text is a problem of honor. Sons and daughters are to honor their fathers and their mothers. God has given us the family as a basic building block of society. You build society on families. That's why the disintegration of the family and the redefinition of the family in our culture today is so alarming. That's why the discipleship and discipline of children is so important. There is a God-given authority structure inherent to the family unit, which is the building block of society, and it is a good design. Parents are to love and lead their children. Children are to obey. And the fifth commandment instructs us all to honor our father and mother that there might be thriving, that we might live long in the land. The latter half of Romans chapter 1 gives us a list of traits that mark the unrighteous world, and guess what one of them is? Disobedience to parents. Here is a unit of society that society founds its foundation on, the family. And if it disintegrates, there are societal repercussions of enormous, enormous value. Now, some people think that Ham's sin had something to do with sexually defiling his father. But even those people that think that admit, and maybe you've heard this before, admit that Ham's, that they've got no justification for it. They, they can't find it in the text. It's just, it's just an inference that they have, are imposing on the text. Which, which leads me to believe that the, that the plain reading of this passage is that Ham dishonored his father. This text shows us that our behavior towards our parents has enormous consequences. Ham treated his father without dignity. He treated him disrespectfully. He spoke about him to his brothers. He ran to his brothers and gossiped about him disrespectfully. And so this passage should challenge the young, those living at home, to obey their parents. This has societal repercussions. But it also ought to challenge those of us whose parents are getting older. It should challenge us to treat them, to care for them with the respect and honor that they deserve as they age. Not to grow frustrated with them or to try to hurry them up when they're too slow, but to be patient with them to give them time and attention, to listen to their memories, to listen to their wisdom. I'm compelled by the example of Shem and Japheth. Do you see it? Verse 23. They go out of their way to show their father honor, to treat him with dignity. I mean, <laughs> the picture created in verse 23 is, is rather awkward, don't you think? These two guys, they, they, they put their back to the entrance of the tent, they throw a blanket on their shoulder, and now they're walking backwards to, and maybe trying to find their father's legs or something like that so that they can cover the guy up. They go out of their way to show their father honor. This, type of, this is the type of honor that we are to show to our parents. We need to go out of our way to honor our father and mother. The defilement after the flood is not only personal, it is familial. It finds root in Noah's family. And this reality cries out for a true and a better Adam. Well, let's look at the third 
layer of this defilement in the text. The defilement is not only personal, it's not only familial, but look at one more implication of this. The defilement after the flood has universal implications. When Noah recovers from his drunken stupor, he is evidently told about what Ham has done. He launches then into a prophecy about his three sons. These three sons represent the nations, represent the nations of the world. The son of Ham, Canaan, is cursed. Well, why? We ask the question, wait, it's Ham that sinned. Why is Canaan cursed? The answer in the text is not explicit. Some people believe that it's sort of a mirror curse. So Ham is the youngest son to Noah. So God cursed um, Ham's youngest son because it's sort of this mirror effect. The answer is not explicit. But one writer captures the reason well. Here it is. Here's what he says. Cursing a person's son is a most powerful way of cursing the person. It means cursing the future of his line. And the line meant everything to those to, to, to those folks. Friends, our, what we see from this is that our sins have widespread consequences. We like to think that when I sin in isolation, my sin stays in isolation. Really, our sins affect the whole body of Christ. Oh, it's subtle. Oh, it's slow. But our sins begin to bring rot into the household of God. It, it, they, they begin to bring rot into to our own family's existence. Our sins are never personal. The Bible never looks at sin as just an isolated event. It always has poison that spreads to those around you. We know that the Canaanites, Canaanites, I should say, the descendants of Ham's son, were bitter enemy of God's people, Israel, throughout the Old Testament. Canaan was so utterly perverse that in Leviticus chapter 18, it, the Lord condemns the, the nakedness of the Canaanites and the defilement that embodies the Canaanites. Canaan is pictured as a nation defiled by sexual immorality in every way, and God says, Israel, you are not to be like Canaan which uncovers its nakedness in abominable ways. The word nakedness is actually used 24 times to describe the Canaanite nation. Ham's defilement is not private. If we trace the line of Shem, we see that it leads to Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel. This nation would have a special relationship with God. Look at the second prophecy that Noah makes. He also said, it says in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem would have a special relationship with the Lord. A deliverer would come through Shem. The deliverer promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who would crush the head of the serpent. A deliverer who would never be defiled by sin, but would bear the defilement of the world's sin on the cross in our place. He would take upon himself the defilement of the world and pay the price for it so that the curse of Canaan, God's wrath upon Canaan, would not land upon us. And the text makes clear, if we trace these family roots far enough, that this is not just good news for Shem's line, who happened, who happened to be the Jews, the Israelites. This is a promise for Jew and for Gentile. Japheth is the father of all Gentile nations. These are the Indo-Europeans. And Noah prophesies, do you see it in the text, 
that Japheth will be enlarged. His offspring will prosper, in other words. He will dwell in the tents of his brother Shem. He would dwell in the tents of the elect line through which the true and better Adam would come, the deliverer of Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of the serpent. In Jesus Christ, Gentiles have been invited into the blessing and benefits of the tent of Shem. In other words, what this prophecy is saying is that our defilement is dealt with at the cross of Christ. He is the true and better Adam. He stands up to the temptations in the wilderness. He is the pure and spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This account helps us to realize that our sin has enormous implications. It defiles us personally. It defiles us familially. It is, it is a universal problem. And this account forces us to understand that the human race requires a true and better Adam. The depravity and defilement of the world can only be addressed in one way. We need an undefiled deliverer who will take the penalty for our sins. And our invitation through the text, through this prophecy of Noah, is to enter the tents of Shem by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we trace what God did through the line of Shem, it causes us to be amazed by the grace of God. He knew what the human race required. He knew what he had promised. He knew who he would send. And he would send his very son. Let me conclude with the words of this hymn writer. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The human race requires a true and better Adam. And that Adam comes through the line of Shem. And we, Gentiles, by faith are invited into the tents of Shem to be cleansed, to be renewed, to be restored in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's sing our praises to his name.